The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. Welcome to Setting the Record Straight, a podcast of Reconstructionist Radio. My name is Joseph Foreman, and I am an owner-operator of a coffee shop on the edge of Gomorrah, or Asheville, North Carolina, as it is often called by the locals. I've done nothing of note lately for the last 25 years, except daily talk with and minister to the cutting edge of grunge millennials and silver ponytailed legacy children who have been moving into this area for since I was a kid. I've been asked by the good people of Waco to do a second podcast on hermeneutics. So this Sunday, I'll be taking a brief look at the hermeneutics of Bojidar Marinoff, whose compelling thought has gripped many and whose abrupt style of seeming to dismiss people out of hand has probably driven off at least as many. Now, to my knowledge, this will be the first attempt to explain what the presuppositions are which drive him. This is not going to be a compendium or a digest of what he has written or the many controversial positions he's taken, but rather it's going to be a look at the thoroughly in-the-box presuppositions he holds that have led to his out-of-the-box thinking. He is in many ways, I think, a remarkable example of what a Reformation person is like. At any rate, in no way am I speaking for Bojidar. He doesn't even know that I am doing this for him. Uh, he's not heard it. I've not run the material past him. This is just based on my knowledge of him. Uh, as I knew him about 20 years ago, We, we um, he lived with my family for about six or eight months, and uh, probably only about three or four months, but it seemed like that. No, just kidding. Um, and, and he and I traveled around the country together in a small car. Um, for about two months, and that was one of the high points of my life um, at a time, just being able to talk every day about the issues of life. At any rate, let me introduce you to what I think about and how I analyze Bojidar, and hopefully it'll give you a way to be able to see how he how his thinking comes to be what it is. You see, everything about Bojidar is a challenge. He comes to a ripe, fat, happy West and finds us busily spending the last of the capital that the alienation, sweat, and blood of Christians for over 2,000 years and God's people really since the dawn of time have been storing away for us. We are marinating in 2,000 years of Christian advance and the advance of all civilization. We are, in effect, the silver ponytailed legacy children spending the billions in cultural heritage built up over a six millennia paid for by the blood of the martyrs. We are the pinnacle of the faith and we are doing all we can to tear that pinnacle down, chop it up into pieces and sell it at bargain basement prices, much the way the millennials are carving up their parents' inheritances, which is being left to them rather than earning their own. 
We are the prime example of what a belief in the knowability of God's word and God's world can produce. When people are unleashed to govern themselves and trade freely, we've been doing this more or less for, for 200 years. And yet, what you find today is not one Christian in a hundred can tell you why we are so successful in simple economic terms. And not one in a thousand, maybe not one in 10,000, 20,000, can tell you why this legacy exists in the West. They think it's it's something that is either natural, it just happens this way, kind of like in cycles and we're on an up cycle, or it's an accident, it just happened, or it's a gift of secular humanism. It's funny what Christians believe. Well, Bojadar comes to the best of the West, us here in America, and can find almost nobody who understands why we are happy, rich, and free. Why we are the place where everybody in the world wants to get to. The longer Bojadar is here, he can find fewer and fewer people who even realize that they are rich and free, regardless of how much time they have to play and the money to spend, compared to any other people in the world, really compared to any other people in history. The pagans are increasingly discovering, at the same time, the value of being victims who need the state to advocate for them. And Christians are busy doing nothing, believing there is nothing to do except wait out the whatever is going on in the world today for the rapture, and feel guilty about everyone in the world saying they have been victimized by us. A collectivist, central controlling government either means nothing to your average Christian today, or is, in their opinion, a way to minister to the needy victims of, of our greed. You know, and how many Christians have you heard saying, well, we need the government to take care of the poor. The church won't do it. Who's going to do it? That's just guilt and pity speaking. If the government becomes totalitarian, they don't care. They're certain their faith can handle it. Yes, yes, they're sure of it. And yes, I'm talking about Reformed Christians as much as dispensational Pentecostals. I'm 63 now. I've talked to a whole lot of people in my brief time on this planet. And I'm just telling you, what Bojadar has run into for the last 15, 20 years, and it's stunning to him. Now, I, I don't want to say that everybody's totally ignorant. There are a few antiquarians who are rediscovering the Christian foundation of America and the Constitution. But Bojadar Marinov watches dumbfounded as these facts meaning mean almost nothing to Christians. They They'll take the amazing foundation that exists in our country, in the Reformation, and things like that, and they'll greedily pick them up like children, saying, look, I'm related to George Washington. No, no, you look, my ancestors came over on the Mayflower. And someone else said, no, the Bill of Rights is all about our biblical ideals. Other people will say, well, I'm Reformed. I'm Wesleyan. Well, to Bojadar, these ideas ought to transform our understanding of life and purpose, yet they fall as dead as the American Christians are who transform those ideas into interesting ancestral facts, sort of anecdotal stories about your great-great-grandfather with no real current impact, or maybe a desire to return to some golden era. Now, if you want to understand almost everything you don't like about Bojadar, you have to look at America the way he sees it. Most kids today, I'm sorry, most of you under 40 today, literally have no personal concept of the great death of collectivism as a personal threat to the world. 
He, however, grew up in a culture where initiative was either destroyed or those who had the initiative if they weren't destroyed were recruited, trained, and sent on search and destroy mission to root out others who might have initiative. The great death of collectivism, communism, was the fruit of a comprehensive worldview that took history very seriously, deadly seriously. The people would be victorious. The workers would be free of any metaphysical or religious crutches. The state would reform and reshape people into the new free man, content to be controlled by the state, and would kill all those who would not fit in. And it's a good thing. Why should they live? Bojidar was somebody as a young man, through his 20s, through his early 20s, was fast-tracked in the Bulgarian Navy. His parents were doctrinaire Marxists who rigorously raised him to be a dialectical materialist by faith and reason and hard-disciplined study. He cut his teeth on Kant and Hegel, not to mention the complete works of Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. They rigorously taught him vernacular German, French, and English. For him, the other Slavonic languages are just dialects, as difficult or as easy to understand as an inner-city African-American or Hispanic accent would be to us country folk. He knew, as a young man, that this Marxism was a lie and a cheat. But what else was there? His generation there in Bulgaria and really throughout the Eastern Bloc and in Russia could see that there was something going on in the West. They could see that the East was bankrupt. But then in 1992, the Iron Curtain fell, and as he walked through the streets one Easter night, with just the possibility hanging in the air over that whole region, as finally it seemed that night was coming to an end, he saw an Orthodox church lit up to celebrate, walked inside, and God changed his life as he looked around at all the goings-on, celebrating the resurrection. With all its possibilities in a Marxist world coming to an end, The Marxist religion, he knew, could never meet the needs of a dying world, and he met the Savior who could. Christians, the Christians who guided his early spiritual life, were the Pentecostals. He spent the next two years praising the Lord and trying to find out what the King of Creation planned to do with his creation. Stunned, he came to the realization that Jesus planned to do nothing at all, except extract a few Christians who were left, all that are left after the failure of the gospel and the impotence of the Holy Spirit, how else could the gospel have failed? And how, why else would God come and just bail everybody out? He certainly couldn't change anything. And then what he would do is just blow the world up behind them like a bad made-for-TV movie, you know, where the heroes are walking out of the house and he pushes a button and boom, the place goes up behind them. That was Christian theology. And we Christians were to wait and hold uproarious Jesus appreciation meetings until he came and enjoy internal peace and the joy in the Holy Ghost. So he said, in effect, let me get this straight. Karl Marx, a mere man, has a comprehensive plan for the world, a belief in the victory of that plan and the goodness of how it will transform the world. But Jesus Christ, who is God, can't even redeem that world, has no plan for it except its destruction, because he fails to make good on his plans from the creation. Seriously, this religion is a hoax. Marx was right. It is the opiate of the people. Then someone put a copy of Dennis Peacock's book, Doing Business God's Way, 
into his hands, and he discovered a redeemer of the world who did have a plan and was not going to be turned aside from it, even if it cost him his life, and it did. From there, he devoured Gary North, Rush Dooney, Bonson, Luther, Calvin, Erasmus, and Aquinas. He committed himself to the Reformation and transformation of Bulgaria by translating the gospel into the language of Bulgarian culture, starting with Dennis Peacock, North, Calvin, and Rush Dooney. That's when I met him, well down the road of his newly launched translation project in the 90s, recruiting his first converts and homeschool fam- families in Bulgaria, where it is still illegal to homeschool. And we would argue with various souls in Gary North's chat rooms, meeting people like Pastor Runyon, of all people. From there, I came to find out that Bojadar was not somebody living in California. In fact, I asked him where he was from, and he said, Bulgaria. And I said, well, how long have you been in America? He says, I've never been here. And I had, I'm had i pretty good at pegging where people are from by, by reading their English in and, and posts and things. And it was... <laughs> I was stunned. I would have said Southern California in a heartbeat. Since then, I can now kind of pick up probably the most difficult thing in any language, and that's the use of of a, and, and the. But, I mean, he makes really very few mistakes in his English composition. So, but this isn't about that, how I got to know him or anything like that. It's if you want to understand Bojadar, You have to understand the seriousness with which he takes Jesus Christ and God's plan in history to transform the world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is not a a quick prayer you just run through. That is the framework of Jesus' plan, Jesus' philosophy of history. And I know this will, to some of you, be unbelievable, but Though he takes all of that with tremendous seriousness, if you ever sit down with him, you'll find the utter lack of seriousness with which he takes himself and everyone else. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's able to easily dismiss people is because that's the way he treats his own ideas as he's developing and thinking through them. But I'll get to more on that later. When he translates the Puritans, Calvin and Luther, he is not reading an antiquarian history. He's reading about how God transformed his church and took another huge step forward in history, liberating women from pagan slavery and idolatry, liberating men from bondage to priests and kings. The Reformation, like the conversion of Constantine, like Justinian's law code, like Thomas Aquinas' synthesis of Christianity and the Greeks, or Van Til and Rushduni and their work in Christian applied theology and philosophy and apologetics, these were steps forward, each of them, But you see, none of them were glorious finales to be looked back on and savored like a fine wine or to be looked back on and be despised because from our safe distance, hundreds to thousands of years in the future, we can see the mistakes they made. Now, strong Christian traditions can be found who believe that it is sin to suggest that something more can be done to apply God's word than was done by their favorite philosopher or theologian. But Bojadar has absolutely no use, and I mean that literally, no use for Christians committed to either ignorance of their own heritage or to worshiping their heritage. He has no use for Christians who believe that the Holy Spirit is done. The gospel's application has now been exhausted by the Puritans or 
the political thinking of the gospel has been exhausted by the Constitution of the United States, or, or the final word on it really was the Articles of Confederation, or something like that. Whether they're premillennial dispensationalists or postmillennial theonomists, he, have no, he has no use to people who think that the gospel is done being applied to the world. He especially has no use for postmillennial Calvinists who believe this, who actually hold in their hands some of the most precious world-changing ideas yet keep them squandered in the dark like a miserly dragon, being sure they have no current application beyond deadening an already moribund worship service and books of rehash, rehash, rehash theology. Conferences are the same. Let me give you an example of this. And this is an example. It's not an argumentative thing that I'm trying to say one way or the other. It's just, just an example. If you look at the Reformation doctrine of the church, you'll find they clearly left no doctrinal or theological room in the order of salvation, in the doctrines of grace and reprobation, and the definitions of the church. Basically, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1 through 25, uh, and the First Baptist Confession, they left no room for the organization of elders to control the means of grace and discipline those who fall and be the only ones allowed to, to do any performance of anything much. But you will also see that clearly the writers of the Book of Church Order, when they discuss the Lord's Table, worship, and churches organized and disciplined in the Westminster Conf- and, and discipline, and in the Westminster Confession of Faith in the Second Baptist Confession, twenty years later, from about that got all tangled tangled. <clears throat> when the same people who wrote chapters one through twenty-five turned to church organization and discipline, when those people wrote their books of church order and so forth, when the uh, uh, second Baptist confession came out about 20 years after the first, suddenly what you find is they leave elders completely in charge of these church rituals and make them nothing more than reformed priests functionally in direct contradiction to their theology which has no room for anybody else being the door to the sheepfold. Their theology, which sloganizes the priesthood of all believers. Their theology, which tried to bring down the Roman idea that you needed to have priests standing between you and God. Functionally, they put these people right back in there. So when you go to argue about the Reformed view of of the role of elders and church government and so forth, what you'll find in the Westminster Confession of Faith, in, in, in fact, you'll even find it in the first chapter of the Presbyterian Book of Church Order, uh, of the PCA at least, this exact same uh, contradiction um, of homage being given to the priesthood of all believers and yet an entire functional system in which to have access to any of the means of grace, you have to go through the ordained clergy. There's a problem here. Now, now, here's what I want you to get. Not whether you think one or the other is correct. Bojnar's understanding of the Reformation was not that they had gone as far as we could go, and we dare not go further, but that theirs was a real step toward the liberty of the gospel, and it is our task as those who follow them to continue in those steps away from the dominion of priests who stand in the doorway of God's grace, neither going in themselves nor allowing others, and he calls us to break completely away from the exclusive priesthood of the priests, 
the monopoly of the ecclesiastical hierarchy on the flow of grace to God's people. He sees this as, we need to continue the Reformation. We cannot simply say, that's all there was. Now, you may not like my example. You may not uh, agree, or you may say, ah, Foreman has an axe to grind here. Now, I do have an axe to grind, truth be told. But, but the fact is, there's an unevenness, and he says it's time to take a step forward. In fact, most of his thinking is trying to say, what were they saying? What were they doing? How were they applying the scriptures? Let's move. My point is an example, not to argue for and against it, but to help you understand that for him, the Reformation is a living thing that continues to bring the light of God's word to bear, even on all the steps they took. Okay, it's not that those steps need to be added to Scripture, which functionally is almost done in many circles. Those steps need to have the light of Scripture cast on them, and they should not be immortalized as if that is as far as we dare move, and now our task is to wait. We're not sure for what. For Bojadar, the things that make America Christian, freedoms like we find in the Bill of Rights and the involvement of the common people in the government through elections and, and on juries and so forth, the division of power so no one person or group can think that he is God and no one government can have final control of all others. It's, it's a remarkable example of the first commandment in governmental form. For Bojadar, these are not idle facts. They're the stepping stones of history beyond what even the Puritans imagined possible in the inexorable march of Jesus Christ and his people to free the earth and transform governments as Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the prophets said he would, as Jesus said he would. But the purpose for taking these steps is not to glorify them. It's not to treat them as if they are the plateau beyond which none can go, as if no further political steps are possible. As if because we have uh, the division of the federal government into three houses, three um, the judicial, the executive, and so forth, that, that that is God's final word on government. And America must be blessed of God because she was the last step we know of. And, and look how great it is and everybody likes it. No, no, he says, keep walking in the direction Scripture lays down for our freedom in God's law word. Were there serious mistakes and compromises in America's founding? Yes, of course. He sees those. In fact, uh, he, he describes them on many occasions. Starting, but, but I mean, go back before that. Starting with the pre-Nicene fathers, all the way through to the 19th century, every step of the church and of civilization following the church was sown with the seeds of compromise and destruction. And you look, can look back and read the seeds of compromise and say, bah, nothing going on here. But you can't discount the fact of the step God took. And that's something Bojadar doesn't do. He doesn't discount the fact that it's God that has inexorably been moving through history. Great steps, great errors, but each one like an incoming tide moving further up the beach before it is swept back down to be caught up in the next wave, surging it a bit higher. What I want you to get about his thinking is he is crystal clear on both the brilliance of what they accomplished and the error mixed in with it, with that accomplishment. What makes Bojdar unique in many respects is that he grasps both issues, both what is right about the Reformation and what needs further reforming. Then, for some inexplicable reason, the Church lost its confidence in the historical victory of Jesus Christ. 
and the church replaced it with an internal Hindu style of almost Buddhist enlightenment and inner faith and inner light in, in the dispensational evangelicalism, uh, which is the name of this movement that, that made that step and detached Christianity from history. Even the staunchest Reformed churches fell under this shadow, inventing the halfway house of amillennialism, because no longer did even they have the confidence of a, of a robust sense of God's victory in history, the history that he started in the garden. At the same time that Christians, the evangelical church, lost the conviction that God wanted to transform the world, starting about the 1830s, 1850s, through the 1950s, Christians embarked on a social quest to use government law to improve mankind in the temperance movement. Let government force transformation of the world where God seemed to no longer care, as near as I can tell in their theology. And I, I think that's, that's an analysis that I got from Bojar, at least he, he would find agreeable. Suddenly you have the progressive and collectivist world adopting the Christian confidence in the historical victory. Except they saw that victory coming not in God, but in the state, just like the Christian progressive movement replaced God's law with things that they thought would be very, very good. And I don't think that it's arguable that it would be bad if, if men could no longer get drunk and beat their wives. It's, it's not a bad thing. And, and that was a, a highly motivating force. But Christians traded God transforming the world by the power of the Holy Spirit to government force transforming the world by the power of the police. And suddenly the progressive and collectivist world picked up on that idea, picked up on that even the Christian confidence in the state being a, an organization that was capable of doing this and using it as the means to engineer the new man, the new world. There are many who think that the reformers or the founding fathers of America were right, but they do not understand either God's word nor the history of theology or politics the way the reformers did or even the founders did. And these are some really bright, well-schooled people with lots of degrees following their name and lots of followers following their name to prove how smart they are. And they are smart. I know that sounds sarcastic. I didn't mean it that way. I mean, they, they really are bright people. But the fact remains and this is what stuns Bojadar. All they can do with all that brains, all that tradition, all that history, all those knowledge, all those years in graduate school, all they can do is build memorials and tombs for the prophets of old and re-argue the arguments of 500 years ago and the political principles of 200 years ago. Isn't America great? And then they wonder why the Democrats or the Baptists or the, or the Arminians or the Papists or the Dispensationalists don't get it. Truly, they have no clue how a Democrat or a Catholic or anyone outside their orbit sees the world, and they don't think it matters. Therefore, they have no ability to speak anything other than the vain repetitions of the arguments of old. They don't understand that expertise in theology, if it's not translated into expertise into some aspect of God's creation, is not very impressive except to anybody who is also interested in an expert theologian. Bojar gets this. He understands it. And he wants to find people and motivate people to be excellent in their understanding of the faith. 
Now, there are others who understand antithesis, can see all the compromises in our Constitution, the Founding Father. They can see all the compromises in America as it is today. And they love Bojidar because currently this aspect of his thinking has been in the forefront, destroying the high places and the idols, putting the acts of God's word to the root of modern error, particularly in, in the ministry-industrial complex, as he calls the modern church. But though it might come as a shock... Bojidar is as committed to the idea that the founding and government of America is, a, is as great a step forward as its compromises are a deeply regrettable fact to be overcome, not gloried in. Boy, aren't we great. We can figure out everything that's wrong. His analysis is always unto taking the next step. Never just so he can show his superiority to Jefferson or Franklin or Douglas Wilson or the ministry industrial complex uh, which the church has become as they pour all of their resources into reducing God's mission to what can be controlled and comprehended organizationally by elders or by the Congress, becoming everybody's nanny. In form and structure, whether it's the ministry-industrial complex or the military-industrial complex, in form and structure, they're no different from the collectivist vision of Marx or the priestly vision of Rome in Eastern Orthodoxy. I believe Gary North, in his inimitable style, statement of things, summary, said something to the effect of you have hardcore Satanism, which is straight-up collectivism, communism, socialism, progressivism, and you have softcore Satanism, which would be conservatives on the exact same road over the exact same cliff, just taking a far more scenic and pleasant route to get there. Bojidar calls on us to take that next step. The church's accomplishments call for the, 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 the cultural capital laid by for thousands of years is there in order to build the temple of God. He wants us to see scripture the way the reformers saw scripture and to react to our world the way they reacted to theirs instead of merely seeing what they saw and repeating what they said about it as if the reformers and founding fathers worked politically and theologically and socially changed the world as far as it could be changed. Now it's our job to hold it at that point, as if there's nothing more to do except watch it wither away. Loyal dogs of the end, standing their post and barking with all their heart. That is reformation. No, no, no not the barking dogs, the attack dogs full of confidence that the Holy Spirit will continue his work to transform the world and make the next steps possible. And it's to those next steps that he refuses to shift his focus or to back off of his relentless critique to attack everything that keeps us from taking those steps, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So to recap what I've said so far, hermeneutics are the presuppositions that a person or a school of thought bring to their analysis in this case, Bojdar Marinov's hermeneutics can be summarized. And this is my summary. This is not his summary. I've not read anything like this in what he said. If I've, if I've messed up here, I'm sure Bojdar will be the first one to, to say, no, 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 you got it completely wrong, you fool. <clears throat> he wouldn't call me a fool. He would just say, if I believe that, I must be a fool. And I'll get to how he does that in a little bit. 
But of first importance, understand that Bojidar brings a ruthlessly consistent mind that was trained by communists from earliest childhood to think comprehensively in three or four different languages about the world in terms of presuppositions that should guide us to see what is really there, to penetrate the veil of possibility, and why it is there, and what we can do to change it for the better. And this he does... Whoever feels, and this he does, regardless of whoever feels stepped on in the process. Now, after this personal fact, the first principle of all of his thought is that Jesus Christ is the creator of the world and of history. That Jesus Christ is the Lord of the world and of history. And that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world and of history. The second principle is that this creator, Lord, and Savior will bring the world, this world, to his grand conclusion in the same history that he began in the Garden of Eden at the dawn of creation. He who began the good work is going to complete it, both in you who are a part of his plan as well in the whole plan generally. You aren't going to wake up one day in eternity and find out Jesus saying, well, shake the dust off your feet, there's nothing we can do. The third presupposition that Bojidar holds is the finality of the written word of God. It is God's law word that sifts the souls and lives of mankind by the power of the Holy Spirit, shaping them more and more as individuals and as societies to bear the weight of glory and responsibly live in the freedom of God's grace and law, which makes possible when, the, when, these, when, when God's grace and his law shape our lives from the heart. And he has confidence that this process is continuing and growing. And so we come to the fourth presupposition, that God's plan was to write his word, his law, on the heart of his people, so that each person would be free to govern his life according to God's word. And that governance would make them free. All attempts to violate this holy call in his image bearer's life and ministry is an idolatrous affront to God, and, by the way, to to Bojadar too. The purpose of all other forms of government, family, business, church, state, is to limit itself to Scripture. The reason these other forms of government exist, other than the the self-governing individual, is to limit themselves to Scripture's definition of their powers and purpose, and to disciple and enhance the individual's growth and maturity in God's Word and its application to life, not to replace the individual growth in God's word and to stifle it. Now, in one sense, if you want to understand everything he has to say about police, borders and immigration, politics, the church, holiness, government, freedom, feminism, patriarchy, etc., stop the tapes. Listen to this fourth presupposition over as many times as it takes to grasp each part. This is where I get really scared, because I mean, I have no idea what he'll think of this. But to put it in a nutshell, I boiled it down to a single proposition, well, a single banana bunch of propositions. The final court of appeal is the Holy Spirit speaking through the word to the spiritually mature individual, enabling him to govern himself by God's word. That's another way of saying By final court of appeal, I mean you are responsible to apply the Holy Spirit's 
speaking to you through the word of God. And your responsibility to be spiritual mature and to have faith that God's word will enable you to govern yourself by God's word. And for everything you do, you're responsible to do it God's way. That's your final responsibility. Nobody can do that for you. The elders can't. Your husband can't. The governor can't. Okay? The final court of appeal is the Holy Spirit speaking through the word to the spiritually mature individual, enabling him to govern himself by God's word. He's responsible. The function of the other governing groups, such as the family and the church, is either to produce self-governing individuals. That's the family and the church. That's their one purpose, to raise up mature, spiritually mature, self-governed people. Or, if it's the government of the United, oh, excuse me, not the United States, of the state, it is to limit their control of these mature individuals to the terms of God's law. They can only do to them what God's law says they can. And a mutually agreeable contract and punishing those who damage others. Nothing more, nothing less. Out of that grows all of his other thinking. Every assault against this position always, always, I've read probably a hundred of them now, leaves out one of those dimensions and then builds a straw man. Every time Bojadar calls someone a name, it is after he's pointed out what his actual position is, usually several times, Yet whomever he is talking to doesn't stop and see if that wouldn't change the discussion or critique. It's not that the person has to say, oh, I agree with you. He has to ask questions that demonstrate, oh, I heard what you said. Not to agree with it. I don't agree with everything he says. He, Bojar will spend hours discussing the details, but not when he decides that the person he's talking to wants to ignore what has been said. And I will pick this idea of insult up to close with, because to Americans, this is perhaps what bothers them the most about him. But first, let's finish with his fifth proposition, which is that the doctrines of Scripture are earth-shakingly, triumphantly, transformatively true. Not merely theoretically, but day-to-day in our lives and vision, they call us to continually transform our vision and life to fit their reality. Not us to transform them to fit our reality. And you know what these are. The Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement, the Ascension, the rule of Christ over the earth, and that sort of thing. But remember, for Bojadar, the issue isn't, the issue isn't do you agree with these doctrines? Of course you do. If you're a Christian, in some sense, what you've got to say you agree with them. The issue for him is do you ruthlessly see yourself and the whole earth in terms of them? refusing anything, any principality or power, any theory or person that lifts itself above the knowledge of God as revealed in the scriptures. Whether it's Bojadar himself who's made the mistake and is an error, or an angel from heaven, or the elders of your church, or your husband, or your wife, or anyone else. Well, you might say, well, I, I believe that. So what? And Bojadar would say, exactly. Only a fool can think that if he believes all that stuff for him is just laid out, only a fool would think that, that, that could possibly respond, so what? So what? <laughs> At this point, the fool says, I am offended that you called me a fool. Now, you see, the wise person looks beyond the possible insult, realizing that he was not insulted at all. Of course, 
Only a fool could say, so what to those doctrines? So what if God became a human being in the flesh? So what if God died for my sins? So what if God died for the world? So what if God uh, sent us out to transform the earth? So what if he sent his Holy Spirit to, you see what I mean? The wise man would say, who? Yeah, that's right. I shouldn't have said, so what? I should have sharpened that. And I should have said, okay, I believe those things. How am I different from you? And then the conversation would go to, well, look at what it is you believe. And I just ran through a couple of the significant, the earth-shaking significances of these things. And the wise man would say, good point, Bo. I misspoke. And in saying this, he would not be agreeing with Bojadar on all his theology, but seeing, how do I say this? He, he's not agreeing with Bojadar because Bojadar came up with some of these doctrines. Rather, he's seeing what the scriptures teach and realizing that they are true, and he just took them for granted. He's seeing the earth-shattering implications of the simple truths we hold as Christians, little guessing, that they are the tools with which God will transform our lives personally and our society generally and his whole world totally. And that brings me to the final point of his thinking. Well, I can see I've missed a few of his points. I'm, I know I have, but I'm already way, way, way over the time I intended to go. <clears throat> There's something he does which is troubling to many of us. Bojadar's use of insults. I'm not going to defend it. I'm also not going to attack it or say it's wrong. Those of you who know me know that I tend not to let people who are more radical than me or more decisive than me, I tend to let them be more decisive. Um, I spent a portion of my life being that way, and, and I'm all in favor of, of everybody else who wants to be that way. Go for it. But I will try to explain it to you. I'm not convinced it's the best way to do it. On the other hand, I can't say that it's not a very effective way to do it. Maybe it is time for Americans to grow up. Maybe this is just the first of what we're going to see. And if it's this way in the Greenwood, what will we be like in the dry? These insults serve two, maybe three purposes. First of all, you got to understand that they are a tool they're not just him getting irritated or pushing people around saying, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm big, you're little, I'm smart, you're dumb. His insults are a tool, more of a scalpel. Well, sometimes they're a sledgehammer. For getting people to decide whether they are interested in substantive argument over what is truth or whether they are interested in being highly esteemed and treated with great respect. The arguments function like, and, and by the way, that's that's not a entirely wrong uh, in fact, I don't even think it's wrong at all. I think you should always ask yourself, whether it's him or anybody else who's just insulted you, are you interested in the truth or are you interested in people being nice to you? If you're interested in people being nice to you, you're not going to last very long. That's just a reality. Or you'll go to a nice place. But they function like this. First, the insult is never to the person he is arguing with. And I want you to get that. And you can go back nice about faith, Facebook. You can look at lots of them. He doesn't insult the person he is arguing with. I know you're thinking of a dozen places where it is precisely directed to the person he is arguing with. But hear me out. His first insult usually follows an insult from the person he is arguing with that the arguer doesn't even think of as an insult. It could be a clever turn of the phrase, a, a, a throwing off, a simple statement which we write and they feel good. I've often said to people, if you want to write effectively on Facebook, read through what you said and everything that makes you feel really good, like I really said it, 
scratch that out. It's probably offensive. Or, if not a clever turn of the phrase, or simply refusing to pay attention to what has been said, and that's usually the more serious thing, as if an answer is impossible or irrelevant. So you ask a question, surely Beaujardar can't answer, and it comes across as that sort of a question. Well, how about this? How about that? And you can hear it in in the tone. I'm not saying the arguer can hear it, but but objectively, you can hear it. Now, in, if, if you're in court as an attorney, that would be an abrupt slapdown from the opposing attorney who would simply say to the judge, ask and answer, Your Honor. Don't refuse to pay attention to what has been said if you want to seek truth. Don't act as if an answer to your question is impossible. Otherwise, why ask the question? What's the point? The next thing about his insult is that it is never directed at the person, but at an idea. That's a stupid idea. Only an idiot could possibly think that. You would have to be brain dead to say that. Would summarize some of his often more intricate and directly worded statements about the stupidity of an idea. But I I want you to get, he is not saying you are stupid for holding that idea. Now, you may think it's the same thing. After all, you stated the idea. You you believe the idea. You must be stupid in his opinion. No, that is not the way Beaujardar thinks at all. It's not even close. You see, in his world, ideas and those who hold them are fluid. We try all sorts of different ideas on, like like clothes in a store all the time. There's no reason for you to hold an idea or to buy the clothing just because you tried it on. Once you discover it's stupid or looks stupid or it's unflattering, and it is a true friend who, when you shop, is willing to tell you that that hat that you love and almost bought and thought was so cool was really pretty garish and made you look like an ass. Now, all of us, including him, have held any number of stupid ideas. The point of arguing over an idea is to determine if it is stupid or not, and if it is, to reject it. You can't do that if you're going to spend all your time saying, <clears throat> committing the Pontius Pilate error, which is, I have written what I have written. I have made an argument that I have made. I have thought an idea that I have thought. If, if that's going to be your approach, there's no point in talking to you. Okay, excuse me, I'm, I'm giving his position. I'm also fairly sympathetic to the idea. I grew up with a dad who was exactly like that. <clears throat> Very careful how you think and discuss with him. You can learn an awful lot. You can also get him to shut down in a heartbeat. My dad wouldn't shut it down that way. He would just stop talking when he realized that you were incapable of paying attention. What he's asking you to do is examine your idea with him in light of the theological points I have listed above, his presuppositions, in light of scripture itself, and to take it seriously and to pay attention to what you and he have said and to build on those ideas. That's what he's doing. And if you show that you can't do that, Well, he's going to tend to feel like you aren't worth talking to. And he'll be vocal about it. And he'll give you plenty of reason not to pay attention to his arguments. Because, as one trucker I know said, your butt hurt. I'm not sure exactly what that means. It sounds like a trucker insult, but there you have it. The second purpose, in effect, is kind of like the Marines. He's looking for a few good men, so to speak. He's looking for an army of people focused on the truth, 
not focused on whether somebody is kind to them or argues fair. If you, if you will, he's really looking for people who can handle trolls. Therefore, he wants to determine if the person he's talking to is worth investing in or even has what it takes to stand for truth. Now, I realize that's kind of an arrogant thing to do. On the other hand, how committed to the truth are you? If the person cannot get beyond a surface insult to their vanity and doesn't realize that he has insulted Bojdar on several occasions, then there is no sufficient hunger there to discipline a conversation to take it to the level it needs to go to be profitable for either of the two of them. And the person he's talking to will be much happier to find people who will keep the conversation light. That's light as in light beer as is appropriate to Facebook or chat room. And the last I heard that Bojdar likes <clears throat> light theology uh, about as much as he likes light beer. Now, the third pur- purpose of an insult is to address the epistemology. I can't believe I did that. I was so educated up until that moment. Then I gave myself away. The third purpose of an insult is to address the epistemologically self-conscious folks who reject reformation and know that they are rejecting the idea that we can make changes. We can take the next step of growth for the church, for society. Yes, he does insult them, because the positions they hold, if they would listen to him, if they would pay attention to him, if they would interact with him, they would see that what they have to show is how they themselves are not collectivists in their thinking. Yes, he does insult them. He'll do it right out of the box because they are satisfied in their thoughts at whatever point they are and care nothing for God's people and what God wants to do with them throughout history. They care only for God's people right now and how they can take care of them in their cribs. And, and you know, these great ones who, who rule the church, even though Jesus said, do not get the great ones to rule the church. Whatever you do, do not get the great ones to rule the church. But, hey... Jeremiah said, do not go down to Egypt. And they said, whatever you say, Jeremiah will do. He says, well, don't go to Egypt. Now we're going to Egypt. They go to Egypt. Okay, these 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 great ones I know aren't self-consciously motivated by de- desire to get rich and all the other stuff you hear thrown at them. But they are driven by a way of seeing the world that makes their task to discipline and rule and teach the flock central. And they must always have flocks that need their discipline, rule, and can never take care of themselves. And so we say, hey, we've gone as far as the Reformation can take us. We'll never get any better. In effect, while living a life of top expert and explainer of God's word, these leaders, teachers, and prophets in the church miss the most obvious point of scripture that lies in the next step we need to take. Not the last step they took back then, but the next step the Holy Spirit through the word of God is prompting us to take and we can take it because they took that step. They couldn't take the step. They'd love to take the step. We have the opportunity, but they can't. That's as far as they could get. We need to take that step. And thus they sow their best efforts with the seed of the destruction of all who take the name of the Lord of themselves and pass themselves off as experts and yet miss the most obvious point of all scripture. Christ rules and is going to take his next step with them or over their dead bodies whose crushed cultural skulls he will lead by the stream along the way. 
Go check out Psalm 68, 18 through 21. It's a sobering look at the leaders of the church today. Bojadar is never satisfied. Get that? God always has more for us to discover, to understand, to do. And Bojadar is looking for that. And he's looking for people who want to look for that. So I'll close with this last key insight of his. There are others. For instance, we haven't even gone into issues of patriarchy and all that other stuff. It's his presuppositions that'll tell you where he's coming from. Ethical and judicial growth. God has given us a particular kind of being. It's in his image, which does not mean a physical likeness, but it is a drive to understand so that we can imagine how things should be and understand how they are and transform the world to fulfill that vision of how it should be. Whether it is art, business, or love, we envision the future and then we work to make it happen. Our image likeness is a small mirror of God's work in the earth, who has imagined in his plan what the world is to be, and he's realized it, and he's bringing it to the fullness of time and glory that even sin cannot prevent the accomplishment of his will in the earth. To make this world the reality God planned, he gives us his law. The ethics of God shapes and governs all we are responsible to be and do, and it is the law that government is to use to it is the law that the government is to use to guard our freedom to shape this purpose in the infinite number of lawful ways we may come up with, with how to proceed with transforming the earth as it lies at our feet in front of us. As we grow in that understanding, we apply his law. And this is our judicial growth. Our understanding of the law, our wisdom to know God's law, is the ethics and the judgment and discernment to apply that law properly in order to bring our vision to fruition. God's vision to fruition is the judicial. The purpose of family and church is to create such spiritually mature creatures. And the purpose of the state is to protect their attempt to fulfill God's vision from either damaging others, which is easy to do, or being damaged by others. And that's the limit of the state. There's so much more to cover, such as the biblical understanding of authority being a function of service instead of the result of someone's standing or appointment or status or something like that that grants them authority no matter what they do and say. But again, if you'll go back to the, that fourth presupposition that I talked about earlier of his, you can predict how he will come down on most things. In fact, you will gain an understanding of how simple his analysis is. It, it, you know, you sit and you listen, you go, wow, man, this guy is so, I don't know what, never before. But all of it is totally in-the-box theology. He doesn't have any weird theology out there. He simply says, brethren, I believe it. <laughs> is I think one of the founding pioneers says, Sirs, you may go to hell, but I shall go to Texas. And that's pretty much summarizes Bojadar's. Sirs, you may go to hell, but I'm going to act and believe and function and argue and critique as if these little doctrines like the incarnation, the atonement, the baptism of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, uh, the ascension of Christ, I'm going to act as if these things transform the world. And I'm not going to spend my time anymore living in a deist box. But I'm going to take that theology and I'm going to show you 
that that salvation lies in going outside the box to where Jesus Christ hung on a cross outside the camp. Yes, anyone listening to me could say almost anything Bojadar has come up with. It's not complicated. God always puts his cookies, fascinating and intricate they may be, but he always puts those cookies on the lowest shelves for all of us. Now, at this point, it's always worrisome to me because I, I don't know what Bojadar is going to think of this. But it's my personal assessment. I think it's the first personal assessment, or the first assessment of his person and thought as one of the more creative and visionary minds you're ever going to run into. It's this ethical judicial growth, this commitment to the idea that obedience to God through service is what grants authority and power in the Holy Ghost, which summarizes all I have said and serves as the basis of his analysis of everything he sees and says. So thank you if you faithfully listen to what looks to be about an, <clears throat> an hour and, and no, not quite an hour, um, 57 minutes of, um, of setting the record straight. This podcast on Reconstructionist Radio. My name is Joseph Foreman. And in five or six weeks or two months, I may be talking to you again. And you have a great night. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.